We are so glad you joined us today on our podcast. We would love to continue to connect with you throughout the week. And to do that, you can check us out at substancechurch.com or on social media by searching at SubstanceMN or Substance Church. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the message. Well, what is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at. You made it to church. Man, you guys look good. Come on. Can, can I have everyone here at Northtown just help me join? Just welcome everybody in downtown, Westside, Monterey. We love you and all the churches joining us from all over the place for our sermon series. Uh, if we haven't met yet, I'm Pastor Peter Haas. Um, from Substance Church here in Minneapolis. And of course, today we're going to have some extra fun because uh, we're going to be talking about a little topic called joy. Now, uh, about 10 years ago, I wrote a book, a little comedic book. I actually wrote a couple books before this book, but they were so lame, nobody read them. So I, uh, no, I, I kind of changed, they were a little too nerdy, my books before it. And so I thought, I'm going to try to do a little bit more like comedic spiritual growth and, uh, and it was, of course, you know, this little book, this, you might recognize it. This is the old school cover. This is the new school cover. Old school, new school, old school, new school, old school. And this, but what, here's the deal. I didn't expect it to take off um, when I wrote it because ultimately I was kind of a no-namer, but I thought let's just try something new, a little bit more comedic. And um, of course, like every artist, once if you're like me, if you're an artist, you know how it is. The moment you finish your art, you're like, it's beautiful. And then you're like, I hate it. You know what I'm saying? Like you just, you, you kind of go back and forth. Nothing's ever done. There were a lot of things I wanted to change about it over the last 10 years. Um, but I, I, you know, I, you move on to new things. Well, I felt like the Lord, especially after 2020, I felt like the Lord was like, Peter, I think it's time for a whole new generation to get a fairsectomy. And uh, it's a, it's a, you need to re-release a 10th anniversary edition, revised and expanded. And uh, originally, you have to understand, originally the thesis of the book was just to help Christians experience more grace and more joy. And in turn, once they experience more grace and joy, they're going to extend more grace and joy in, in every conversation, in every relationship. Whether we agree with people or not, you can give them dignity, grace, and joy. Did you know that? Okay, acceptance and agreement are two totally different things. And you don't have to agree with people in order to accept them, show them life, show them love. And, and so, uh, and how many of you think grace and joy are more relevant than ever? In our culture, there's a famine. Even in Christian culture, there's a famine. And so I updated the book with a few extra chapters on, on with extra humor, but, but also um, revised and expanded. I think you guys are really going to love the updates. And so we're going to be doing a series on this. And, and by the way, if you're out there and you hate reading books, I wrote it for people that hate reading books, okay? I got you. I got you. No, I, I, how many of you could just use a little more laughter, a little more joy? I don't know about you. I could use a whole bunch more. And, and part of the reason why joy is so important, not just to me, but to the scriptures, to the Bible, is because joy is one of the preeminent symbols that you are in sync with God, Galatians 5.22. If you don't have joy, you're probably out of sync with the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you do a word study 
on the, on the word joy in the Bible, it is everywhere. I mean, come on, you could go through the Old and the New Testament. Psalm 1611 says that in God's presence is fullness of joy. And so if you want to experience God's presence, guess what? It's a natural consequence, a natural outflow. Acts 2.46 says that the early church met with joyful and sincere hearts. It's what they were known for. Christians were known for joy and sincerity, okay? Acts 14, 17 says that we serve a God who fills our hearts with joy. Romans 15, 13 says that God fills us with joy as we trust in him. It's almost impossible to read the New Testament without coming upon this word over and over and over and over and over again. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Against these things there is no law, the Bible says. I mean, in other words, they're the most important things. And so then why does it feel like so many Christians look like they're sucking on lemons all the time? What is it? And, and, and part of it, I think some people, they spend a little too much time watching the news or on social media, which naturally makes you look that way. But really, when you read the New Testament, I mean, joy was the preeminent sign, uh, attribute of a Christian. And, and here's the deal, okay? I just want to say this out to, to those of you who are out there. And, and, you know, whenever pastors like me talk about joy, I think there's always a few people who you, you feel terrible because no matter how hard you try, you really struggle with experiencing joy. And I, at this point, I just want to say this as a quick disclaimer. I think it's important to clarify the difference between clinical depression and spiritual depression. Let me just make this little distinction, okay? Clinical depression versus spiritual depression. Clinical is when your body is literally lacking a chemical that most bodies produce. Or maybe your body is temporarily lacking a certain chemical that other bodies produce. And I, I just want to say this. There's no shame in taking medications for that. It's just like any person. If you have heartburn, you know, you take antacid, okay? There's, there's things that I think it is important for you to understand that, hey, if your body has a deficit, you got you to... Gotta, all you got to do is deal with it. It's okay to admit that your body isn't perfect. My body is far from perfect, okay? And so that's one thing. Spiritual depression is a little different. That, that can be the result of, oh, you never went to bed last night. You know what I'm saying? Okay, well, uh, that's a little minor thing. But when we're talking about depression, okay? But I'm saying bad choices over time can result in an unmaintained soul. And there's consequences to that, right? Or like there's a lot of research that shows that if you have a legalistic view of God, if you perceive God as angry, there's, a, there's actually a million psychological disorders that spin out of your concept of God. And we're going to talk about some of those in, in the coming weeks. But here's my greater point, okay? If you ask the average unchurched person, if, what are the adjectives that you would use to describe most Christians Joy, unfortunately, is not the first thing that would come out of their mouth, at least in the United States. In March 2022 of this year, in March, there was a poll done on non-Christian perceptions of Christians. How do most unchurched people perceive Christians? And the top, the top adjectives that they chose to describe Christians were as follows, hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous, and political. Those were the top four adjectives. Joy wasn't even 
It wasn't even close, okay? And, and, and I, I get it. Some of you are like, yeah, but some of those perceptions are due to the devil just trying to skew, you know, the view of Christ. Well, yeah, I'm sure that's true, okay, because the Bible says so. But other perceptions, I think, is because you and I are just not experiencing and, and embodying that good news that came with Jesus Christ. And so, really, that's the thesis behind pharisectomy is just experiencing it first and foremost and then and then embodying it to the world around us you know in my in, in the book I actually tell the story of how I gave my life to Christ in a nightclub and uh, many of you guys know I, I grew up in kind of a traditional liturgical Lutheran church uh, you know organ worship and of course by high school if I was to describe myself uh, as you know am I a Christian or am I not I, I would not have maybe considered myself as living the Christian lifestyle. In fact, um, is, this is kind of a weird thing to think about now that I go back to it. I actually boasted at a drug party one time. I was at a drug party. I boasted out loud to the entire party that I can talk anyone into depression because life has no meaning. I literally said that out loud to this entire group at a party. How many of you think God was up in heaven watching that? And he goes, oh my God, did you hear that, you guys? Gabriel, get over here, get over here. <laughs> like, wouldn't it be hilarious if I took that guy and turned him into a pastor? Wouldn't that be awesome? Besides, my church needs more dance music, you know what I'm saying? No, I, how many of you know God has a sense of humor? I am, I am convinced God loves to take people from one place to a whole nother place and just change us. He loves it. I think he likes to show his glory through that kind of stuff. And so I, I just, and again, I'm not going to share my, my full story uh, for the sake of the long-termers who hear it all the time. But uh, one night when I was working in a nightclub, I, I was an electronic dance music producer, uh, turntablist. I prayed, I prayed, God, if you exist, Reveal yourself to me. 30 seconds later, a guy shares Christ with me. So freaks me out uh, that I decided to explore my faith. And no exaggeration, you guys. Um, I literally smiled for the next three weeks straight. I had a weird, dorky, joyful grin for the next three weeks that were so bizarre. One of my friends even went up to my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and was like, what's up with Pete? I just can't stand hanging out with him anymore. He's like too happy. What happened to him? You know, like what happened to old depressed Pete? That's the Pete I, you know, want to hang out with. You know, like it was weird, okay? Like my friends didn't know what to do with me. The sky felt bluer. Flowers seemed prettier. Cheeseburgers were tastier. Even Christian music sounded good to me, which had to be a miracle because I used to make fun of it all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like I was like, what the heck? You know, like... And, and, and so for the first few months, I would be like, everyone I would talk to, oh my gosh, Jesus is so cool. You got to try Jesus. And of course, my old drug friends didn't know what to do with me. What happened to Pete? I mean, they were scared for me. How many of you know life is weird when your druggy friends are like, Peter, I'm, I'm concerned about the life choices that you're making. <laughs> you know, how many of you know things have changed? 
when that's going on. And guess what? Guess what? My, my new Christian friends didn't even know what to do with me. My Christian friends, because a lot of them were cynical church kids, you know what I'm saying, who grew up in church. They didn't know what to do with me either. They were so cynical, and they were deconstructing their faith, and I just don't know about this, and I don't know about that. And, and I would just come to church every week like... This is so awesome. Isn't Jesus amazing? And then they would just be like, yeah, but Peter, church is so screwed up. The church, the church, the church. Christians are so like this and like that. And I, I, they were so like, like downers about the church and Christians. And I, I literally started to think, am I missing something? Am I, it, like, why, why are Christians like feeling like this until I came upon this one Bible passage that suddenly made it all make sense. And I'm going to read it to you out of Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And, and, and I, I realized after reading this scripture, it wasn't me that was missing something. It was, it was my, my Christian friends were missing something. And, and it was, I, I suddenly discovered what the difference was, okay? And Jesus explained the difference. Matthew 13, 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When you think about a treasure, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's like a, a pot of gold. Maybe it's like a, you know, th think of something that is extremely valuable, okay, that could alter your life forever, a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Now, why would you hide it again? Because you want to keep it safe, right? You want to protect it. And then in his joy, how did he do it? In his joy, went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. In other words, he wanted to possess that treasure legally. He wanted to own it. He wanted to fully integrate it into his life. And so he hid it, and in his joy, went and sold all that he had, everything, in order to buy that field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. When a person finds Christ, they're, they're going to be compelled to sell out. It's natural, okay? They won't do it reluctantly. They won't do it because it's the right thing to do. They won't do it out of obligation. They're going to do it because in their joy, they can't help but to do it, okay? And, and of course, according to this parable, Jesus is not describing a person who's like, oh, man, I'm going to miss sin. What am I going to do for fun? What am I going to do for life? I, serving God is so hard. The Bible is oppressive. Okay, no. Jesus says it this way. If getting sin out of your life isn't a joy-filled process, then you have not experienced the treasure, my friends. You haven't experienced it yet. Maybe you grew up in church. You consider yourself a Christian. That's not the same as uncovering the treasure. And I want to point that out today because I think there's a lot of Christians who have yet to discover the true treasure of Christianity. I think, I think for a lot of people, their family might have found the treasure, and they've told them, hey, there's a treasure that exists, and you should seek it. 
And, but yet, and so you come, but you don't, to church maybe, but you still haven't experienced the treasure. Or maybe you, you've, you, you're a Christian because you've got friends who've seen the treasure, but you've never actually had a firsthand encounter with the treasure. You're basically, it's like selling a vacuum cleaner you've never used. You know what I'm saying? You don't even know, you know, does it even work? Is it even worth selling? You know what I'm saying? Like you're just taking someone's word for it. And so of course you're not excited about it. You've never actually experienced it. And so what happens to a lot of people, a lot of Christians, and what I noticed over the years is either they've been mooching off their friends or their family's experience of the treasure, or, hey, they experienced the treasure once, but then they all of a sudden started obsessing about Christians or the church, which will always be imperfect. Come on, somebody. There's always going to be warts on the bride of Christ, okay? That's the church. That doesn't mean... That, that Christ is bad, Do you, are you hearing me? I think a lot of people, their focus is all on the wrong things and it's easy when you grow up in church to all of a sudden hyper-focus on the problems and miss out on what the treasure is. And so it, it's getting our focus back on beholding God and who he is and the opportunity we get to live on his earth in sync with him and his, with the power of his Holy Spirit and maybe you're out there, and, and, and I've, when I wrote the book, I could not tell you how many people were like, yes, but Pastor Peter, it's not all about joy. It's about the cross. Like, you know, one person literally wrote me a letter. It's like, you're missing the cross of Christ, the sacrifice. Okay, I'm talking because that's how I imagine they to talk. You know, like I'm reading this letter and I'm thinking, you're like, wow, they have a really low voice. Um, no, listen to this, Okay. This is what the Bible says about the cross, and I want to point something out. Let us fix our eyes on who? Jesus. Not imperfect Christians or his, the warts on the bride of Christ, okay? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, watch this, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, he went to the cross. He didn't like the cross, but why did he do it? for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him. I want you to internalize that phrase, why did he endure the cross? For the joy set before him. You see, when you do something for joy, what does that mean? It means that you're, you're doing, what, it means that you enjoy something, okay? Think about it. Now, that doesn't mean you always like the things you enjoy. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? There's some things that I, 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 I enjoy my kids. That doesn't mean I always like them. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, okay? You do things for joy. Ultimately, there's a greater joy in it, which is why you do it. Now, why, why does it matter that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him? It's because, because the cross is always meant to be accompanied by joy. Jesus did not carry the cross out of obligation. He did it out of joy. You see, the Bible teaches, Nehemiah 8.10, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's the very thing you need to carry the cross, to obey the plan of God. You can't do it without the joy of the Lord. You, well, you can for a limited window of time, but then eventually you'll burn out and you'll become a cynical church kid. 
You get the idea. You'll suddenly, you'll lose it. it and yet, you know, there, there's, I, I, the reason why I, I'm so passionate about this topic is because there are just so many lemon-faced pastors and lemon-faced churches shouting, the cross, sacrifice. And, and don't get me wrong, that is partially true. I, I do believe that in the United States, there are not a whole lot of churches that are preaching the cross, that there are a lot of churches that have eliminated, they've kind of ripped out all the pages in their Bible when it comes to sin or when it comes to any sort of, uh, of moral compass, we've lost our compass. And, and that isn't good either, okay? We do need to continue to tell people when the stove is hot. We do need to give people the compass, otherwise they're never gonna get out of the forest, so to speak. At some point, there has to be um, a, a, a roadmap. And, and, but that roadmap will come through joy. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay, God's got a calling on all of our lives, a cross with our name on it, but listen, there's joy in that cross if you carry it. And, and so, but to tell people to take up crosses without the joy set before them, that is unbiblical, okay? In fact, a gospel without joy is a false gospel. Literally, good news is what the gospel means. And a lot of people, they take good news, the gospel, and they make it mediocre news or they make it oppressive news. That's a false gospel. Um, for example, a while back I was at a conference um, as a, I get to speak at a lot of different conferences around the United States, and so I, I get to be in a lot of different places hearing a lot of different voices. And, and, and a while back, I was at a, a conference that was just in a big arena filled with, with, with people and filled with pastors, and they had a well-known pastor who a lot of people buy their, this person's books and listen to their podcasts. I'm not going to name them, but the entire time at the, the conference, uh, they just kept shouting the cross, the cross, without any joy whatsoever. And you could see in the audience, it literally sucked all of the joy out of the audience. It was like everybody started out really like positive and clapping and excited. And by the end of the message, everybody, you could just feel oppression over the audience. Everybody was just so overwhelmed. And, and, and of course, you know, for me, it was interesting to watch the room dynamics because as a preacher, I get to see this a lot. And over the years, I've noticed there's been certain messages I've preached where I thought it would like lift people up and I realized that I oppressed people. And, and, I, and, and that's weird for me to maybe admit out loud, but how many of you know there's a really big difference between uplifting people with truth and oppressing people with truth? Okay, the difference may seem subtle, but um, I, I think it's important for all of us when we are truth tellers to know there's a huge difference between uplifting people with truth and oppressing people with truth. And, and, and we're going to unpack that in detail in the coming weeks. But I could see the entire room had just kind of lost all of its joy. And, and so I'm always asking myself the question, does my message make a point without making an enemy? Can I make a point without making an enemy? Everyone now and again, I can't. But, but, but again, if my goal is um, to actually help people, if my goal, there's a huge difference between transforming pain and transmitting pain. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't know the difference between those two things. And so the difference to you might sound like semantics, but actually it's the difference between the kingdom and, and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. Even James 3.17 says wisdom from heaven is pure, peace-loving, cons uh, you know, considerate, submissive, all sorts of things that unfortunately are, are absent from our culture. Again, Matthew 13.44, the real kingdom of heaven will cause us to sell in our joy everything we have. And that's why Paul said this. Check this. 
Philippians 4.14, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. I mean, you read Philippians, and, and, and again, Paul's in prison when he's writing this, and so this is pretty sensational. When he's telling everybody, joy, 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 rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. You just study the word rejoice in Paul's prison epistle, and it's actually pretty profound. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. What does rejoice mean? It means return to joy. Re-joy. You get the idea. Get returned to a position of joy. Why? Because there's mutant forms of Christianity, of dead religion, that'll suck it right out of you. And you're going to run into spiritual-sounding people who, who maybe are sharing truths, but they don't feel like heaven. And, and as kind of one last example of this, I remember when my, my kids were little, um, we used to have pretty great dance, dance parties at our house, in the Haas house, because... Let's just say I know how to pick some hype music. You know what I'm saying? Come on. I, you know, as a dance music DJ, parties be lit in the Haas house <laughs> with the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? And so, like, we would just dance around when, when, and, and, of course, um, just go crazy. And if, what, what was interesting, so my kids all grew up loving music. All three of my kids um, play instruments. They love music. And, um, you know, in my book, For Sectomy, I, I tell the story of when my son I, I took my four-year-old son to a fifth-grade band concert, and just to kind of give you a little image of, of what he looked like when he was four, um, he was just a feisty kid, and being the youngest, you know, you got to yell to get everyone's attention, and so, you know, it's just like most, the, you know, the, the third-born is usually a little more demonstrative, and that was exactly him. And uh, the story I'm about to tell took place on this exact day. Um, my son, for some weird reason, loved wearing uh, a little tuxedo um, for weeks on end, okay, which was really weird, um, you know, because it would get so dirty, you know, you would sleep in it, and, uh, um, and so, and, you know, there comes a point where you just don't fight with your kids. You're like, ah, I don't care, you know what I'm saying? But your firstborn, you fight with them all the time, right? Secondborn, you're like, eh. thirdborn, you're like, he'll raise himself. You know what I'm saying? You just, he'll be fine. Eventually, he'll get sick of his tuxedo. He'll... Well, finally, you know, guess, who, guess what he wore to the fifth grade band concert? His tuxedo, right? It was perfect. And so what was interesting, so his older sisters were in, the, they, were some, they were in this fifth grade band concert. They were somehow involved in it. They weren't in fifth grade yet, but um, the fifth graders had only been playing trombones and tubas for like eight weeks, okay? So they're eight weeks in, and this is their first concert, so my expectations were not super high. Uh, for all of this, right? Especially as a, you know, many of you guys know I, I was a classical cellist um, and uh, for years. And so my expect I knew I, it's going to sound clanky and awkward, right? Well, before the band started playing, the MC was describing the song they're about to play, giving a little music history lesson and just, you know, casting vision for this song that these fifth graders were about to play. And of course, my son, he was getting visibly excited, like, Dad, they're going to play a song. Like, he's getting on the edge of his seat. He's, like, excited. I mean, the MC was great at casting vision. And besides, my son, again, he loves to dance. He loves music. So he's, he's, like, licking his chops, like, I can't wait to hear this. And finally, the conductor gets ready. It was silent, and he counts it in. One, two, three, four. And the moment they started, it sounded horrible. Horrible. I mean... I mean, cymbal clanks, 
squawks, everything was off. I mean, and my son looks at me with the most horrified look on his face. His four-year-old heart had just been grieved, and he looked at me like, we have been betrayed. And before I could react, he stood up on his feet and shouted with panic over the entire audience, wait, wait everybody, this isn't music. (laughs) And of course, I jumped up, to I put my hand over his mouth, but it was too late. The truth had escaped. The lion was out of the cage. This isn't music. Just rang out. And of course, you guys, you guys, the whole crowd collectively chuckled because we were all thinking it, right? But my son, the pastor's son, had the boldness to say what we were all thinking, right? This is not music. And of course, you know, it suffices to say I had to have that father-son talk afterwards. Eden, you have to be quiet, okay? It's okay to feel that way, but we... We don't say everything we think. We don't say everything we think. There's a lot of adults who still don't understand that because their parents didn't have that talk with them. Here's my point. Kids are terrible liars, aren't they? The hardest thing about parenting little kids is they say everything. I cannot tell you how many times I had to apologize for my kids. Like... I'm so sorry, right? They just feel compelled to tell the truth even when it's awkward, you see. But in my son's heart, in my son's defense, he thought, it's not supposed to sound like this, Dad. Dad, this is not music, okay? Music is supposed to feel good. It's supposed to make you do this, you know? It's supposed to make you do this. It's supposed to, you know, like he knows what music is supposed to do and it's not doing it, right? And in a similar way, I think we've all had encounters with Christianity that feel like this. You know, for for some of you, you grew up in a mean-spirited church where people beat each other up with the Bible. The way that they impact people with the Bible is by throwing the Bible at people. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you grew up where the, you know, in a church where the board is always fighting and the pastor's always mean or pastor's always depressed. Or maybe you grew up in, I call them hyper-political Christian homes where like the left-wing agenda or the right-wing agenda was so fused in the gospel. It was so fused that theology and political theories were one and the same. You don't even know the difference between political theories and theology because they were talked about as though they are equally important. Actually, a lot of you, your parents were more passionate about politics than they were the Scripture truths. And so, actually, you kind of had this weird, disproportionately elevated sense of what the gospel actually meant. You know what I'm saying? And, and, And a lot of people, they don't even realize what they're communicating but, but, you know, and, and, but, but maybe you grew up in a place where it just always felt like, the, why does it feel like the devil is always winning and, and it's up to us to save the world with outrage? You know what I'm saying? It's because those are byproducts of toxic forms of spirituality. There are toxic forms of religion and there's all sorts of really false religion, false gospels that have like a syncretism with the gospel, and a lot of times we don't even realize we're ingesting it 
that we don't even realize that, that the good news is turned into average news, which is actually turned into bad news. And then we think, oh, my job is to let everyone know you need to be outraged from bad news. And not realizing, no, we've picked up a different gospel then. And I, and I want to I contrast it. Here's the good news, okay? This is, let me just define good news using Titus chapter 2, 11 through 13. It says this, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, right? Glad tidings of great joy, the, the angels announced, right? The, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, sometimes when you're reading the Bible, when you translate things out of Greek, there's not the same kind of punctuation as there is in English. And so it, a lot of times the translation turns into a never-ending run-on sentence. And so if you're ever reading your New Testament and you're like, you're kind of spacing out while you're reading it, some of that is, is the things that gets lost in translation. But I want you to meditate on this because Paul is basically saying, hey, there is this thing that appeared and it is the grace of God. It has appeared and it is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness. If you really want to live a transformed life, you have to have a grace-driven life. You can't get it through any other way, okay? Now, the reason why that is so important is because what teaches us to say no to ungodliness? Grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It does not say guilt trips teach us to say no to ungodliness. It does not say condemnation teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It does not say shame. It does not say finger pointing teaches us to say no to ungodliness. In fact, um, you know, the reason why people love to use finger pointing, shame, condemnation to change people is because, well, it sometimes works. You know what I mean? Guilt and shame are actually motivators. What people don't, it's like a fuel that you can use for your car. Okay, now it's not a good fuel. Okay, the reason why so many preachers and politicians use guilt, shame, um, and finger pointing is because they know that they can get an instant response. It is a motivator. The only problem is, is it's an inferior motivator for, compared to what God offers, okay? It's an inferior fuel, okay? It's an inferior substitute for grace. It's like putting the wrong fuel in your car. It'll kill your joy, your soul, your engine is not gonna last very long if you run it on the wrong gas, on the wrong fuel. Does that make sense, everybody? So you can motivate yourself with shame by whipping yourself and by whipping your kids. That'll actually cause compliance. It might cause some change, but listen, it's not sustainable change, and that's the whole point is that we could not change ourselves. That's what the Pharisees didn't understand, is that we needed the grace of God to appear and teach us to say no to ungodliness. And actually, that grace can come with joy, and it changes everything. So, for example, imagine if you were at the Super Bowl. I know, like, in football season, everybody's cheering for their favorite football team. And, and imagine your team is in the Super Bowl, and they get the game-winning touchdown in the Super Bowl, okay? Now, you were there, and so you're in the moment. Cheering would be a natural response if your team just scored the winning touchdown, right? Okay? You would naturally get up and start celebrating, and you'd start chest-bumping your neighbor. You don't even have to know them, but you're going to be high-fiving, getting up in their face and, and celebrating along with them. Why? Because your team just won the Super Bowl. In that moment, you would certainly not say, 
gosh, I suppose I should stand up and cheer right now. I mean, my team just won. My team just scored the winning touchdown. It would be the right thing to do right now to stand up. You wouldn't do that. You would just automatically do it. You wouldn't have to talk yourself into it. You wouldn't threaten your kids. Son, you better stand up and teach me and show this team some respect. That was a hard-earned touchdown, right? Little Bobby, you better stand up and give that man a whoop-whoop or I will give you a (laughs) whoop-whoop. You wouldn't do that to your son. You wouldn't do that to your daughter, would you? You would never do that. That would be the weirdest response. And yet, that's how a lot of people engage with Christianity. They they motivate themselves with guilt and shame, and then they motivate other people with guilt and shame. And then we wonder why it's so weird. It's a twisted approach. Not only does it steal joy, uh, but it also steals God's glory. One last scripture here, 1 Peter 4.10. If anyone serves God, right, it serves anyone. He should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may receive praise. In other words, you're not even serving in your own strength. This isn't even about your motivation. This isn't even about your power. This isn't about your willpower. This isn't about all, you know, we we so obsess about ourselves. It's about receiving the strength that God gives us. Do you see, even when we carry crosses, so to speak, make hard sacrifices, we're not doing it in our own strength, and this applies from, for everything, from reading our Bible to loving our spouses. And that's why I'm always telling people Christianity is not an action, it is a reaction. Christianity is not a, an action, it is a reaction. The Bible is not a list of requirements, rather it is a list of results after experiencing his love. Okay, that righteousness is not the reward of right living, it's the gift that results in right living. Are you hearing me? I could, I mean, some of you, you need to just internalize some of those statements because you're, you're missing it. You're, 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 you're missing out on the, 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 the true good news of the gospel. And, and, and if I can end with this, I, I, I remember when I released Ferrisectomy 10 years ago, of course, I, again, I had no idea the book would take off. And, you know, and because it's a book about living by grace, I didn't think it would be controversial whatsoever. It's grace, you know, like how happy of a topic could that be, right? And yet I was surprised by how many hate bloggers and internet trolls I somehow attracted. And and in fairness, um, you know, uh, I I do poke fun of a lot of things in the book, but uh, you know, and it's also common for anyone that gets success to get a few trolls, but it, it surprised me how many people would write me letters just trying to unpack their, their, their not so good news. You know what I'm saying? And uh, Christians would write me emails and direct messages all the time, like, how can you advocate for contemporary worship? That is so demonic, you know, as if God's favorite instrument has always been the organ, you know? Or how could you possibly allow political diversity in your church? And in my head, I'm thinking, because Jesus did? Didn't he have political opposites in his exec team? I mean... Uh, You know, I I quickly learned that there were a lot of Christians who were addicted to their formula of Christianity for the gospel, and it was a substitute for the real gospel, and and therefore, when I would talk about truly good news, grace, it felt reckless to them. And, And honestly, I get it. To be honest, Christ dying on the cross was reckless. 
That's what makes Christianity so joyful is that through the cross, you and I can receive forgiveness that is not natural to us, that is not based on our behavior. We won the lottery, not because of anything we've done, but because Christ chose to set his love on us. And now we get to have eternity with him, eternal vocations, and he allows us to use this life as an opportunity to change how we experience eternity. How cool is that? And, and, and the, the, the presupposition is never going to be that you're going to be perfect, but that you get to be forgiven and redeemed to help others become forgiven and redeemed. It's awesome. And so here's how I want to end today, and it's this. Is joy the driving force of your Christianity? Is it joy or is it obligation that drives your prayer life, your devotions? Or, or here's the ultimate question. How would you feel today? if you knew that God was going to take care of your greatest concerns? How would you feel today if you knew that God was going to take care of your greatest concerns? For some of you, the greatest way for you to discover the true gospel is simply by receiving grace today. And, and so just right now, wherever you're at, would you close your eyes and just ask yourself, is there any area where you could use some grace? Is it your family, your finances, your physical body? If you knew that God had grace for that thing that is worrying you and weighing you down, if you knew God was going to take care of that burden right here and now, how would you feel? Let me tell you, that's how God feels for you. He loves you more than you think, and he wants to carry your burdens more than you could possibly imagine with a greater power than you could ever imagine. And some of you, the feeling of joy that's coming upon you as you surrender that burden to him, you know what that is? That feeling is the Holy Spirit. And that feeling is why we call it good news. And some of you long-term Christians, you're going to be born again for the first time today, even though you've grown up in church your entire life. And so right now, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for redeeming us to live a life that we could not live on our own, a life filled with grace, a life filled with mercy, a life filled with miracles and ultimately a life of joy with you, I pray that we'd start to experience it right here, right now. And if you're agreeing with what I'm praying, just say this after me. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me, renew me, and lead me starting today. In Jesus' name we pray. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. Amen. With all that said, we're going to have our campus pastors come on up here and tell us where we're going to go next. I love you guys. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you would like to contribute to Substance financially, you can do so by visiting substancechurch.com slash giving and then select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening and be sure to check in next week for a new message.